For conscious beings, there really aren't any limits in the game. I mean, most of you think you have to breathe. But, and it's very far out when you start to go into deep states of samadhi and you begin to notice or somebody else points out to you that you haven't been breathing for the last 30 minutes. Okay. And a mirror under your nose and there's no breath and nothing's happening. And at first it so freaks you because it's so contrary to your model of how you can exist that you panic and start to breathe again. Hello, amazing Ramdas friends. Welcome to another Here and Now episode. I'm your host, Jackie Dobrinska, and you are these inspired, magnificent beings from around the globe who are on this path of awakening. And as Ramdas says in this episode, there's no turning back. So this is episode 236, The Relationship Between Karma and Grace. And it's from that same 1976 lecture at the Grace Auditorium in LA that we've been listening to for a few weeks. So to me, a lot of this part of the talk is aimed at getting us out of our rigid stances about the world, to really not stand solidly in what we believe to be true. For as Ramdas has said many times, when we live from different planes of consciousness, um, where nothing is absolutely real, but only relatively real, we really don't have a place to stand. But you know, since we have to live on these planes of consciousness and move between them, what does it then look like to be in harmony with the Tao or the flow of nature? And so I feel like this talk starts to address some of that. Um, he touches on what Alan Watts calls the divine madness of love. Um, he speaks to it both from a romance perspective as well as from that place of um, parent-child this leads to a discussion on social roles and grace and karma, the title of the talk. And then it goes on to talk about um, diets and not turning our beliefs about how we eat into these rigid structures, but instead really honoring and giving thanks. Um, and he delves into a deeper definition of responsibility, as well as this habit of righteousness, which isn't always connected to truth. Um, so he'll say a lot more about it, and you'll get a lot about a uh, lot from this talk, I think. And last night, um, this lecture came up as I was having dinner with three ministers and an ad litem guardian. And by the end of the discussion, we just sort of landed in the place that it was a real privilege to be able to think like this, to think about choice and karma and diet, um, because we all sort of were coming from different places. And I'm not going to share all of the nuances of the conversation, um, but it's such a great example of what we do as part of the Ram Dass virtual fellowships. So, you know, our main goal here at Love, Serve, Remember Foundation is to continue the teachings of Ram Dass and Neem Karoli Baba. And we do that in sort of two main ways. One is through content, like these free podcasts. And another is through community. And many of you know that that was Ramdas's one of his big passions for us to connect and meet heart to heart and for this community to continue to grow after his passing. So one of the ways we do that is through our free monthly virtual gatherings. It's a place to meet others on the path, deepen into these teachings, and practice the things we learn. 
And they only work when we all show up. And there's this magic that happens when we do. People talk about how they feel like Ramdas or Maharajis in the room, um, even when it's on Zoom. So come, be a part of the Ramdas community. Deepen into these nuanced conversations of how to bring the teachings into our day-to-day life. You can sign up to get invitations for one of our many different groups. Uh, just go to ramdas.org slash fellowship slash hashtag sign up. Again, that's ramdas.org slash fellowship slash hashtag sign up. And if you want to see the upcoming events, go to ramdas.org slash events, and then you can see all of the things that are coming up. And we hope to see you at one of these gatherings. And while we do want to give away as much as we possibly can, we also need to sustain ourselves as an organization. And there's over a million people that listen to this podcast and only a fraction who donate. So if you don't already and you have the means, please do. Even if it's just a few dollars a month, cost of a cup of coffee or to stream a movie or buy a book, um, it can make a big difference in us being able to continue to offer these as we do. So go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash donate. And as always, we hope you are nourished by this episode and these teachings And whatever good may come from them, may they benefit all of us in our daily life and ripple out into the world for the benefit of all beings. So here is Ramdas, here and now. Namaste and blessings. Could you tell us how to love without emotional attachment? I love questions. I feel like uh, the prophet, Khalil Gibran's the prophet. Speak to us of love. <laughs> you work with these various levels of love. The first level that's very familiar is the physiological making love, the arousal mechanisms, biochemical arousal mechanisms. And that's because you are incarnated in an animal body. And it works very mechanically. Then on the psychological level, there is romantic love. I love her, I love him, she loves me. Includes jealousy, possessiveness, and it involves the polarity of love and hate. Now what that kind of love is is very interesting. It is a form of love, let's say it this way, why you fall in love with someone is because they are a, if you'll pardon the technical word, a stimulus for turning you on to the place in yourself where you are loved. They are your connection. Because when you look at them, you feel like you are in love. You have entered into the space of love. And you are become attached to your connection, just like any junkie does. And you both love them and hate them. Because they could go away at any time. They could die or find someone else to 
bestow their love upon. And people who are in love with each other, they are each other's connections to the place in themselves where they are in love, and they say, we are in love. They, are, they have entered into the space of love, but they are attached to each other as the vehicle to get them there. As your sadhana goes on, as your meditation gets deeper, as you let go of the models of yourself more and more, you begin to touch and enter into that space of love, which is the same as consciousness, by the way. It's the same place. Now, the first experience of entering into that is you begin to experience love towards more and more people. And if you have social models about what you do when you're in love with somebody, it gets very complicated. Because you don't know who to sleep with first, who to shake hands with, who to eat with, what to do, because you've never been in love. When you're in love with somebody, you're supposed to at least hug them, if not marry them. And the first two, you might swing it, but by the eighth one. And when you go down the street and they keep coming at you, you have to change your forms of expression of love. Until finally, you just look at each other and you don't do anything. Because sooner or later, you're going to be just in love with the universe because you're sitting in the place which is love, which is that channel where it's all one. And when you look at another being, you're looking at love. You are love in love with love. You are in the space of love with all beings. And it's unbearable at that point because if you are still caught in that you've got to do something about it or that you want to collect it because it may get bad later, But ultimately, there is a deepening faith, and you acknowledge, I am in the space of love. This is who I am. I have given up all the stuff that's going to pull me out of it. I'm here. Now, at this point, all of the fear of in the love relationship is dissipated. At that point, you come together with people because, because it is your dharma to work with them towards going to God. This is a hard one for many of you to hear. Because many of you are in relationships that you've entered into out of passion, out of psychological need, physical attraction, economics, social reasons, etc. And that is your karma now, those relationships. But once you begin to understand what your dance is about as a soul awakening, the game gets simpler, more and more simple to the point where the only reason you are with another being is to go to God. It's as simple as that. It just gets very, very simple. That's what you marry a person for in order to go to God. That's what the original marriage ceremony was about, by the way. You don't marry out of need. You marry because it is your route through to God. It's your route through to enlightenment. See, at the moment, you are at the point in your incarnations where you have many desires. You want security here, and you want that, and you want that, and you also want to want God, but you don't want God yet. Few of you want God. Most of you want to want God or want to want to want God. It's like, I want God, but don't screw up the game, especially the nice parts. 
Later, you say, I want you, God. You become like Hafiz or Rumi or Kabir. And you say, I want you, God. I don't care. Take it all. Just take it, you know. Do what you need to do. Strip me of my dignity. Take it all. Just get me there. Get me to the church on time. And at that point, you look around and you find you have a whole set of existing relationships. Some of them are not based on sharing the journey to God. They have other reasons, and the reasons fall away, and the relationships fall away because they were what we call friends, and you outgrow your friends. They go in different paths than you do. That's reasonable. Other beings you are connected with, you can't outgrow. Parents, children, relatives of one sort or another. You don't walk away. That is your given karma of the incarnation. And you may grow at a different rate than they do, and they become the fire of your purification. Because if they will pull upon you as you used to be, and your job is to eat that, until you get so even and clear that somebody can come up and say to me, hello, Dick, right? Or hello, Richard, or whatever. And I'm right here. Yeah, hi. Not, I'm Ramdas now. <laughs> and you work with the karma that exists in your life space. Now, marriages are very peculiar in this situation because. Originally, the marriage contract was a contract that put your partner in the same relationship as a parent or a child. It was not something you could walk away from, like a friendship. And it was till death do us part, and it became that kind of karma that you worked on. And even if your husband or wife turned out to be the worst in the world, that was your work. And if you really wanted to go to God, it didn't really matter. That's what's far out about it. If you're nice, you're nice. If you're a stinker, you're a stinker. I'm still going to God. I'll eat you alive, whichever way you are. Right? Said in more loving terms. If, on the other hand, you've gotten into the present cultural position of seeing marriages as special friendships, not even so special anymore, people move in and out of them the same way they have friends, and they outgrow them and they drop them. Now, in terms of what's the karma of the situation, if you have married unconsciously, you are faced with an unconscious predicament, and whether you stay with your partner or not is not, a, is not as gross a karmic matter as if you have entered into the relationship consciously and then break it off. That's a different matter. But once a being has looked up, once they're aware of the predicament, then one st style of life isn't that different from another. It's all grist for the mill, and they don't sit around killing that and keeping that alive in order to make their life nice. They take as it comes down the pike and work with it. The story that I've told many times, a beautiful story of the, the, uh, the maiden in the Japanese village who, is, uh, who gets pregnant by the local fisherman, but she doesn't want to point the finger to the fisherman, so she says, the old monk up on the hill did it. So the townspeople take the baby, and they take their torches, and they go up, and they batter, bang on the monastery door, and the monk answers, and they said, you father this baby, now you bring it up. And he said, ah, so. 
And he took the baby and closed the door. And nine years later, the girl was dying, and she didn't want to die without confessing. She told everybody it had been the fisherman. So they all took their torches, and they went up, and they banged on the gate, and they said, we have made a terrible mistake. It wasn't your baby. We will take it back now. And he said, ah, so. Gave them the baby and closed the gate. Now, there are very delicate issues about passivity and activity and will and choice and so on. And you must listen very deeply within yourself for you are continually making choices and the choices boil down to going either in the direction of the harmony and flow and will of God or the flow of the universe or going against it. And you listen and feel that with the deepest kind of honesty you've got. This trip is based on just two very simple concepts. Total honesty with yourself. Total honesty. If you make a mistake, admit it and get on with it. Don't cover your errors. The whole spiritual journey is a continuous falling on your face. And you get up and you brush yourself off and you get on with it. If you were perfect, you wouldn't need to go on a journey. Don't be afraid of making errors. You may choose the wrong teacher. You may get into a method that's no good. Many things may happen. Made an error, correct it if you can without hurting another being's spiritual opportunities. There is another rule of this game is you may never use one soul for another. If your journey to God is keeping another being from going to God, forget it. You're never going to get there. It's as simple as that. Listen to yourself and be honest with yourself. Those are the games. Listen inward and be honest. Now, when you listen inward, you may not even know what to listen to. There are dozens of voices saying, listen to me, I'm the one. I'm the one, get all you can. I'm the one, give it all up. It's the superego and the id and all these voices all vying for to be center stage. And you keep listening for what the Quakers call the still small voice within. You listen deeper and quieter and deeper and quieter. The more you enter a meditative space, the clearer you'll hear your dharma, your flow, your way home, your route back to the source. The thing we are finally not afraid of is purity. Purity used to be a dirty word. It sounded very um, Victorian. But the reason I finally am willing to say, yes, I am a teacher, not a teaching, which I said even up to a year ago, is that now I am a pure being. I really only want to be with God. That's it. And every time I get off center, because there's still impurities in me, but I have acknowledged my purity of essence. The minute I get into my impurities and my vibration shifts, I go to work on eating it, consuming it. And you get so that when somebody lays a trip on you, that hurts, you thank them because you begin to see that if they can get you, good, you're still gettable, you got something more to eat. 
It's very easy to go into a cave in the Himalayas and get really holy. Light will pour out of your head and you'll have great powers and so on. But try doing it in Los Angeles. You make it through in Los Angeles, you got it made. I live in the middle of Manhattan, right, in New York City. Every day I drive out to Brooklyn or to Queens, drive through traffic, I have to go to the grocery store, I have to deal with all the violence and the garbage on the streets and the whole thing, and my car breaks down, I got it all. Gas, changing the oil, doing the whole trip. Pollution, police sirens, all day long, continuous. If you want God, it's all just energy. It's just Shakti. It's like living in Shiva City. It's just stuff feeding you and feeding you. Eat it. Come on, eat it. Come on, come on, come on. You no longer, oh, I got to get to the hills. I can't stand the city. That's when you're trying to protect your high. When you have faith that you really want God and you're going to go the whole trip, come on, baby, bring on the fire. Come on, I'm going to eat you alive. Come on. Come on. Depressions, oh wow, dig this depression. Boy, am I depressed. Phew. <laughs> Who will win? Will the depression win or will I win? It's God versus the depression. Listen in next week. Yeah. Yeah. All of it. You just got to eat the whole universe. You get really tough. The whole romance of the journey is over. It's not young man going to God or old man going to God, as the case may be. It's just here I am more and more and more and more. And every time I flicker, I go to work. It just mobilizes the whole process in me. Consume, center, quiet, open, heart flow. Because you usually get lost when your heart's closed up. If you can keep your heart open, it all stays very moist. You gotta go to God moist. It's good to go to God wet, not dry. There are a lot of meditators who get very dry. They get all brittly, like dry leaves. And they sit and they're very dry and very beautiful and very uh, transparent-like. You can see right through their skin. They're very beautiful, but they're not liberated. They're just good meditators. Now, all methods are traps. I, as a teacher, am a trap. Krishnamurti is absolutely right on Meditation's a trap, bhakti is a trap, it's all a trap, gurus are traps, the whole shtick is a trap, the concept of God is a trap. But you don't try to cross the ocean of existence necessarily without a boat, unless you can fly. And if you can't, you use the boats, and when you get to the far shore, you don't stick the boat in your shoulder and keep carrying it, you leave it there. But you can't ride in a boat and be so afraid of being in the boat that you got one foot out. And that's the process of surrendering into methods. And only your heart will allow you to do that. You can't follow these practices out of oughts and shoulds, out of guilt and shame and unworthiness. They aren't worth a damn if you do it that way. If you're doing your sadhana because you think you ought to be good or you ought to get holy, forget it. Go out and have a hamburger, go to a porno flick, and start all over again, right? (laughs) Because phony holies don't get there. 
what will happen is if you throw it all over, you will become what's known as a phony unholy, which means you'll be busy making believe none of this exists. But you can't get away with that either because you're hooked. See, Try to get out of this now. Go ahead, make believe this never happened. Go ahead, I dare you. Go ahead, go back and live life just like everybody else. Forget it. You never, rem you never heard of any of this stuff. It's all, I don't understand this. What's, this, what's he talking about? Must be crazy. Yeah. You can go and make believe. I'm just going to live life the hell with all this. It'll sneak in on you. You're hooked. There's no way out. Once you have awakened, you can't get back to sleep. I'm sorry to report. It's just a cleanup operation from here on out. For the next thousand lifetimes or however long it takes. Question is your relation to parents and what part they play. When you're a child, they are your caretakers of your body and they help socialize you. Later on, they are, as long as you are in an incarnation, you honor your parents. Honoring does not mean you do everything they say, but whether you do it or not, you don't withdraw love. Love is there, and you listen to your own heart, and to your own self you must be true. But you don't stop honoring the parents with honor and respect. It's a very delicate road to, to weave, to, to uh, traverse. Very often in your zeal to get ahead spiritually, you reject beings that later you must work through until you can be with them in love, even though you may disagree with them and never lose the ability to honor them. My father and I are closer than we have ever been in our lives. He's 78. Our lives are very different. Our paths are different. Our work is different. But the love is extremely strong and clear. There were fierce moments in the whole game of developing respect. But it became very beautiful, finally. Questions? Please raise your hand. It's easier that way. Yeah. What is the purpose of the silent witness, and what channel, if any, on what channel does it reside? The, um, the witness, as um, reflected in the writings of Uspensky, is, um, well, most of the time when people are using the witness, it isn't really a, a higher faculty it's mainly using a part of the intellect to um, observe the rest of your being. It's not a vertical, it's a horizontal separation. Only later on do you develop a dispassionate separateness, which is not pushing away, it's acknowledging it's from another level in which you have an intuitive sense of what's going on. That's a different level of the witness. That comes for very few, and it only comes later on, actually. That isn't what most people become. Don't get upset. It's all right. It'll all work. For most people, it doesn't work out that way. The witness is a good vehicle for getting distance. You've got to be careful that it doesn't have a judgmental quality to it, and it doesn't involve the closing of the heart. The predicament is that a lot of times people use the witness as a way of defending against stuff. Yes, I know you're very upset. Go ahead. What is the... Okay, I've got the question. What is the relationship... I heard the question. If you'll be quiet, I'll answer it. Yes. 
What is the relationship between an individual on the path and government in its various forms? I already answered that in part, that if you are going to honor the path fully, you honor your incarnation fully. And part of your incarnation is as a man or woman, as a certain age, and you have a number of social roles, one of which is that you are a member of some nation or other. You may have some religious affiliation or other, and a number of other social group references. In each case, you honor that. Now, what honoring it may mean is protesting against it, or it may mean supporting it, depending on your inner voice. When I talk with Jerry Rubin, who's a very close friend, or Huey Newton, or Jerry Brown, all of whom I've spent time with, always my statement is the same. Do what you do as consciously as you can do it. Do it as an exercise for going to God. But don't run away from your karma or your dharma because you won't get to God that way. You do it in harmony with the desire to go to God. You do it in harmony with the will of God. But you do what you must do, and people can be in total opposition to one another politically and both be genuine beings going to God. There is no alignment between the two things. I'm sorry, this isn't a dialogue. I can't do it that way. Yes, sir. What is the relationship of grace and karma? This is a very, very profound question, by the way, and I want to uh, state at this moment that a few years ago, when I spoke in Los Angeles, I gave a different answer to this than I'm going to give now because I've grown in the past few years in my understanding. And it, was, it came about through a misunderstanding of my guru. Because at one time I asked him the same question, what is the relation between grace and karma? I said, aren't grace and karma the same thing? And he said, I won't answer that in public. <laughs> and that was all he ever said about it. So I assumed what he meant was, I agree with you, but I don't want everybody to know. But it turned out that I wasn't ready to hear an answer. As I now experience and perceive it, up until the moment when you start to look up or acknowledge things, you are going pretty much on automatic. You're just unwinding karma. You are like a karmic machine working out stuff. Then there is a point where you recognize your predicament. You look up. That looking up starts a process. The looking up and asking or going inward, you can either go in in meditation or ask, reach up, that is what elicits grace. And what grace turns out to be is all of the forces that exist in the universe that are free agents that are available to support the process of your going back into the source. All the gurus, all the beings on astral planes, all of the elements, all of the forces in the universe. And when you, it's like Buddha every night, 
would somewhere between three and five in the morning would look out over all the Buddha realms, not just the physical plane, but all the realms, to see who was ready, who had the hand up. And it was that that elicited from him the grace. That is, grace is called forth in a strenuous way by prayer, not necessarily by our Father who art in heaven, but by asking or reaching or demanding or looking or looking up. That brings forth grace. That up to that moment is your karma. From then on, your choices to go towards God or not are not Oh, this is awful. This is a stinker to talk about in a large scene because it's so complicated. They are not an isomorph. They're not an identity with karma anymore. There is a space. There is space in the whole game from here on in. There are choices that you can make to go in harmony with the will of God or against the will of God, and your choices keep bringing forth more and more of the grace. All a being will do that is free to help you is speed up the rate of the process. But if you choose to go against the process, they won't stop it. Grace doesn't pick you up out of hell and send you to heaven. That isn't the way grace works. Once you start to go, grace will speed up the process. It's like you start out in an arithmetic curve and it'll change into a geometric, it'll just go up like that. That's the grace. That's the grace of where two are gathered in my name, there I am, as Christ says. That's Christ's grace coming forth where you call in his name. And that actually is all straight. That's right down the pike. That's just the way it is. Is that dealing with your question? Yes, sir. Would you repeat that? Are those two questions? What is your view on vegetarianism and who is God? I thought the, they were one question. The answer to both of them was George Osawa. <laughs> <laughs> Better watch it. <laughs> yeah. I'll end up on the number seven diet. <clears throat> As I uh, hear it about diet, at different stages of your sadhana, different diets are indicated you start to be pulled towards them. These are not based on morality. They are based on what kind of vibratory rates you can ingest and transmute. And there are stages where you start to get to the point where you can't handle meat because of the vibratory rate of the rajasic in Hindi, it's called the rajasic quality of it, the, the hot, intense, passionate stuff. You can't get calm enough through it. So your diet starts to lighten up to fish and eggs and vegetables and grains and fruit. Then you might go one step further and you can't handle this and that. And pretty soon you get down to grains and vegetables and fruit. And then there are times when you can't handle anything but fruit. And then you may go through a stage and get to the point where you are so connected and clear and so beyond that you can eat anything again. It doesn't make any difference. Now, it gets very far out about the whole eating business because there are beings, including um, one of my teachers at present, 
who can live totally on the amrit or the nectar that comes out of a hole in the roof of the mouth that comes down from the brain. And if you watch her, she will constantly be sucking on her tongue, and that is drawing that amrit down, and she just eats the amrit, and she can keep her weight up. That's the way Teresa Neumann did it, for example, who ate one Eucharist way for a day for 12 years. So a lot of the models that we have from like the World Health Organization about what the minimum conditions are for survival are like rat studies. They're based on unconscious beings. Okay. For conscious beings, there really aren't any limits in the game. I mean, most of you think you have to breathe. But, and it's very far out when you start to go into deep states of samadhi and you begin to notice or somebody else points out to you that you haven't been breathing for the last 30 minutes. Okay. And a mirror under your nose and there's no breath and nothing's happening. And at first, it so freaks you because it's so contrary to your model of how you can exist that you panic and start to breathe again. But you can actually breathe through the top of your head. And you don't breathe in the same stuff. You live off a different thing. It's just like what Teresa Neumann said, I live off light. You just transmute different forms of energy. So that the diet game isn't a clear one. There are certain diets that will help purify your system, which is full of a lot of toxins from a lot of the kind of crap you eat all the time. And those are good. They're really generally good, like... I mean, the macrobiotic diet will clean you up, and a lot of the simple vegetarian diets will clean you up. But it's not, don't get into a good and evil trip about it. It doesn't work. You're just getting caught in a lot of morality. And a lot of people are much more preoccupied with food, or as Christ said, what you put in rather than what you take out in the Aquarius, in one of the Gospels. You get more preoccupied with food because you can measure it, and we're externalists than you do with the thoughts, the food in your mind, which is much more important. And it is, I must honestly tell you, that people have gotten enlightened, or liberated anyway, eating everything. So it's clearly not going to be that game, simply. I mean, the American Indians consume buffaloes, and there there were very, very high mystics and saints in the American Indians. The Tibetans ate meat because that was all they could eat. And they honored the animal, and the, it was all part of the karmic working through for all of them. And the way they did it was not spoiling or wasteful or angry or anything. It was in the way of things. And I remember sitting meditating at Big Sur once when I had a house up in Gorda. I've told this story before, and... The house that was loaned to me by Esalen Institute came with a cat. And every morning the cat would go out and get its prey to eat. And it would come in and because it loved me, it would come over and sit between my legs as I meditated and chew on the skull of the mouse or on the lizard. And the lizard would sometimes be alive and flapping or a tiny little rabbit. And I wouldn't know who to hate or who to love or which way to take, what to do. Did I hate the cat? No. And I heard, I learned a great deal. I was just being fed, being taken through a tremendous understanding of one level of our existence. Would I define responsibility? Oh, I didn't tell you what God was. Would I define responsibility? That's being responsible. 
what I define responsibility. I think I'd say responsibility is honoring your karma. Is honoring your karma in harmony with the will of God is the closest way I could say responsibility is. It's a Taoist answer. It's living in the Tao. Living in the Tao is a responsible human being lives in the Tao. That's the closest I can get to that. I think that there's a very delicate problem that many of you get caught in. I've certainly got caught in many times. And that is the relationship between righteousness and truth. That many of you have used righteousness as a vehicle, really based on your own unworthiness and guilt. And the thing is, righteousness does not lead to truth. The truth does allow you to be righteous. But aim for truth, and truth exists behind the polarity of good and evil. And that's where Christianity is different than Christ. Christ was interested in you going to the Father. Christianity worships Christ. Christianity is involved with imposing a moral structure on people who are not conscious to keep them living a good life, to bring them closer to God. Once you begin to become conscious, you must be mature enough to confront the fact that you must go beyond man's morality, not in action, but in acknowledgement, in order to be a moral person in the eyes of God. And that is a stinker. And it can be misused extraordinarily of somebody saying, look, I'm above the law. I can do anything I want. And if they are not pure, they are just bringing heavy karma upon their heads. But a being that is pure is free of the law of man and free to act within the law of man out of choice, not out of fear or obligation. Because there is no more fear. Because the worst you can do as one human being to another is torture or kill the body or the psychological mind. And if you aren't any of that, nobody can do anything to you. That's exactly what Christ was teaching. He said, hey, baby, look. You want to do me in? Go ahead. Here, here's my body. Go ahead, do it to it. I'll show you. You nail me up and I'll come back. I'll show you, it's no big deal. You do what you can do, and then I'll do what I do. I'll show you how it works. He just made a very simple statement about the possibility of human, who you really are when you finish being who you think you are. That's what our game is. That's what we're here about tonight, to play at this space. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation, and ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.